April Voki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Ann Miller is an aquatic biologist and the author of the popular book, Hatch Guide for Upper Midwest Streams. I've been a longtime fan of Anne's, from her work with entomology to her founding of Fly Girls in 1996. In this episode of Anchored, Anne and I sit down to discuss how her experience in a tricky economy helped to shape her career into what it is today. Join us as we dive into the nitty-gritty of some of our favorite bugs and how they relate to us as anglers. Also, if you haven't already checked out AnchoredOutdoors.com, please do. Anchored Outdoors combines education, community, and accessibility all in a sequential system that is fun and easy to follow. I know that free content is everywhere these days, but that doesn't mean that it's accurate or trustworthy. I also know that you'd prefer to spend your time on the water instead of figuring out who and what to trust. That's why we cut straight to the chase and do it for you with step-by-step guides, renowned instructors that you've come to know and love from the show. We also have our ever-growing library, interactive events, and even our fun point system that lets you earn even more than what you pay for the membership itself. We've got all sorts of exciting new surprises around the corner, including a members-only podcast so that you can now listen to the classes on the run. Find out more at anchoredoutdoors.com. I am a native Michigander, uh, grew up uh, in a very small town uh, called Saline outside of Ann Arbor, and it, uh, it literally was a one-stoplight town, all farmland, and now it just looks like a big extension of Ann Arbor. There's, it's really lost that little small town flavor. And, um, but uh, <clears throat> I met my husband. We both went to University of Michigan, and he had a family business on the west, on the southwest side of Michigan. So we are on Lake Michigan now. So I love this side of the state. It's so much prettier and more relaxed. I, I wouldn't go back to that kind of Ann Arbor, Detroit metro area. It's fun to go back and, you know, find great places to eat and music and that sort of thing. But um, so, so busy, so much traffic, everybody in a big hurry always. And I don't miss that. <laughs> it is busy now, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, it is. It is. So um, now this, uh, the the Western side of the state is just a different you know, different feeling um, altogether and uh, just prettier. It's a lot more undeveloped land um, still, so that's nice. You can, a lot more sandy soil, so all kinds of different trees and plants. And so that was fun um, initially when I came over here and uh, had to learn all that new stuff. So did you grow up fishing then? I know you don't hunt, but did you grow up doing any outdoorsy stuff? Yeah, so um, my dad grew up on a lake, and so we did a lot of ice skating, um, and we did a lot of rowboat fishing. (laughs) So we, and we never had any good equipment, except my my older brother did. My older brother, there's always, you know, favorite aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas and stuff. So 
my older brother was the favorite of my aunt and uncle, and they lived on a lake. And they took him fishing, and he had a, you know, a real, you know, spinning rod. And um, the rest of us had these just, you know, rolled up cane poles with the same old dried worm from last year on them. And that's what we fished with, except, and then my brother had a tackle box and everything. And I think secretly I always just wanted to try to, you know, outdo him somehow and get my own spinning gear and, uh, and eventually I did. And, and, but you know, the whole family would get the rowboat rented. My mom would pack a lunch and we'd go and fish for bluegills and perch. And, um, so that I loved it. I mean, what kid doesn't love to fish, you know, dropping something into the water and something else coming out, just that whole fish pond mentality. Oh, a year old dry right. worm. Yeah, like, <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, uh, it obviously made an impression, and um, I think you know, really, all my siblings uh, enjoyed enjoy fishing. But I'm the only one that fly fishes. How did that all come <clears throat> come to be? How did that take place? I was a student at the University of Michigan Biological Station several summers, and the first summer that I was there, um, no, the second summer that I was there, I met one of my. Um, fellow graduate students was from Colorado and he tied his own flies and, you know, he was so into fly fishing and he says, Oh, I'll, you know, I'll take you fly fishing when we get up to, you know, this station. And, you know, I was like, okay, that'll be great. That'll be great. And, <clears throat> and they did. And we, you know, we walked out this, and it was during hexagenia hex hatch, you know, so big time fishing and we walked out through this farm field at night, and uh, they said, okay, just do this. Don't do anything else. And they basically just showed me how to roll cast. And so he said, don't do anything until the fish, you know, this hatch starts. And he's telling me about the insect. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So, <clears throat> and then they left, you know, and they were they were far gone. They were way out of earshot. So I sat there and you know, waited and waited and waited. And, and finally, you know, it seemed like forever. It was probably, it was probably a good hour anyway, but maybe more. Um, the hatch started and the fish started to feed all around and it was just incredible. And so I did everything wrong. You know, I immediately, after about three roll casts, you know, I cast over to the bank, got completely tangled. I don't even think I had a flashlight, pulled it out, um, got completely broken off and um, the fish kept feeding and, and it's all at night. So it's super exciting. And um, I just was like, wow, I have to come back and do this again. And I uh, got to tell them about it. And, you know, it's like, oh, I wish you guys would have been here. And, um, and so that's really how I got into it. And, and then later um, I, I got my husband, Ken, to take a, fly fishing class with me. Um, we actually went to the L.L. Bean Fly Fishing School, and Dave Whitlock was the the main instructor. Aww. And that was really cool. And it was a three-day school. Um, and he never really got into it, but it, at least we, we got to do it together. But when they taught the entomology section, you know, because I had this aquatic biology background, just like this light bulb literally 
just went bing. I said, and I was like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. And I could really see just doing something with this. And, and that was, whew, that was probably in 1987 or 88, 1987, I bet. So a long time ago. I, yeah, a long time ago. But wait, so you were interested, you had already gone to school for I'm going to make it really simple, really simple bugs. You'd already displayed an interest in bugs. Well, so this was before I got into bugs. So I started off studying, um, algae. Oh, okay. 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 And then I took my first entomology class and it was like, Oh my gosh, I love bugs. And so then I, I followed up with some of that, took some more bug classes and really transitioned into into bugs and um especially as it applied to fly fishing i mean i just i really threw myself into it and um just did all the study and all that research on my own what was your goal initially with your studying i mean why algae what were you what were you hoping to do with your education um that's a good question at the time so when i finished up um, with my master's program, it was one of the first big, uh, recessions and nobody was getting a job. And so I, rather than keep going in, um, and studying that more, and especially after getting into the bugs and thinking, gee, I, I'm not even sure I want to keep going with algae. Um, I, I would have, I would, if I had, I would have, you know, wanted to be in a university setting and, um, and teach and, and do research. Um, but since no one, you know, all these people that were way smarter than me and, um, just all kinds of great accolades, um, in their research and so forth, if they couldn't get hired, you know, why, why keep going, you know? Yeah. So, oh, that's, that's interesting. So you're kind of saved by the bugs. Yeah. So then how does that all come together? I've got a number of questions and I don't want to overwhelm you. So I'll, I'll throw them out here and there, but well, I guess let's just keep it real simple. How did you make a career through bugs? How did it all start? Okay. So back up a little bit. Um, so I had, um, my, my girls, my older girls and well, that's a, well, I, I was staying at home with them. And so I felt like I, there was more that I wanted to be doing. And so, um, I started doing some writing and then I, I met, um, some, some local people involved with what was then the Federation of Fly Fishers. And they, there was a publication that was being put out that was very, very good. It was a, it was a local newsletter, kind of a, you know, almost like a it was 16 pages, I think. And they were looking for an editor. I'm like, wow, that, that could be really kind of fun. And, you know, I could see myself doing that. And so, of course, nobody wanted to do it. It didn't pay anything. Um, well, I don't, maybe somebody else, probably not. But I said, hey, I, I'm kind of interested in this. And so it, it opened a door to meeting just some incredible people. 
And I did that. I, I uh, edited that. I did some writing for it. I, I was able to um, just make connections and meet people. And um, so that I did that for quite a few years. And then um, I don't time time wise. I got to think now where I would be. Probably in the nineties. Um, I don't know if you did you know Tom Helgeson? He was the editor of Midwest Fly Fishing, and it was a it was a really really wonderful publication. And of course, I I met him, and I uh, started to write a column for him. It was called Natural Settings. And it was anything that I might see on the way to the river, and I could write about it. And so <clears throat> I really developed a, a column that was, was kind of a, you know, where, where assuming you would have some kind of a uh, feeling for, you know, not just looking at, you know, oh, there's a blue heron or, the, you know, there's a trout lily or something, you know. It was like I had more of a why... Why does this occur? And if you saw it, if you saw it, you wouldn't even really know the question to ask. And so I, I wrote about things that were um, kind of a puzzle. Can you give me an example, Anne? You've got me very excited right sure. now. Sure. So, um, so one, so this takes, this is obviously I have a little bit of a background in, in, in a lot of natural history, but I noticed just on a walk that I had, red oaks and white oaks. And yet there were lots of red oak acorns, but there were no white oak acorns. They had all been eaten. And so it's like, well, that's interesting. I wonder why. And so I, I just would go down, the, I call them rabbit holes, where you just kind of throw in and you do all this research. And it turns out that white oak acorns are eaten right away by squirrels and that the red oak acorns, they actually go in and they, and they kind of uh, bite off uh, the little shoot part and then they bury them. Um, and they actually taste better after they have, you know, sat in the ground for a number of months and they're, they're more bitter when they eat them right away. And um, so... I, I just love doing those. Oh, things. an excuse to go down any rabbit hole. Yes. Count me in. I love rabbit holes. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so they would, they would take, I put a lot of research into it and I, and I wrote for Tom for, I think 13 years. And then he, he got just a, a terrible cancer and, and died very quickly. And, and his, nobody took it over. And, and so then I, I also, in, in being involved with the FFF, which now is FFI, Fly Fishers International, um, I did a lot of teaching of, of fly fishing. And, and my friend Dorothy Schramm and I, we started Fly Girls, and we were teaching so many courses, so many, you know, intro women classes. And, and, and I always taught the bug section because that was like, you know, I get so excited about it. And um, so anyways, one thing led to another and I started, um, I just started really delving into um, the bug study. And at the time there just was not, I couldn't, I had to cut and paste from so many different books 
and and um, you know, and and that's back when you could copy, and I would leave the reference in there, and I'm sure that probably wasn't all legal, but I mean, since it was educational, you can kind of get away with that. But um, you know, I remember thinking, gee, I really wish. And then, of course, you're learning all the fly names, and there be, you know, twenty five flies that look almost the same, and you know, back and forth, back and forth. What what fly to imitate this, and back and forth. And I just thought, gee, it'd be really great. If there was a reference that had the bug on this page and the fly on this page and that you didn't have to go and buy 16, 18, 20 books to, to figure it all out. And that's kind of when I started to really, really go down, you know, the, the bug or the bug rabbit hole, as it were. Um, and I just started, that's when I started studying them and, um, and the taxonomy was still a little bit of a mess. I mean, a lot of things had been renamed or um, uh, hatch charts taken, you know, names from the Eastern hatch chart pasted into our hatch charts in the Midwest. And um, so there were always this list of bugs that we had were this, when in fact, really it was only like this, you know, just different fly fishing clubs would add things in. And so um, that's kind of, that's kind of where that all kind of came together. So it was a big circuitous route, but um, I think, you know, fly fishing led, led to writing, led to teaching, led to bugs. Which we're going to dive into, I mean, just beyond a rabbit hole. What's bigger than a rabbit hole? We're going to dive into a full-fledged train tunnel on bugs in just a minute. But um, <laughs> the fly girls, though, tell me about your fly girls. How did that all start? Because that was one of the first females. It was female only, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. But one of the first women-only fly fishing groups that there was. Is that right? So we're actually not um, <clears throat> women only. So let me give you a little background on fly yeah, girls. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> And I don't know how much of this you experienced. You're younger than me by quite a bit. But when I started getting into fly fishing in the 80s um, and probably 90s, early 90s, um, there you could, I remember going into, and I won't use the name, <laughs> the brand, but big store in Chicago. And I, and I had, and Ken was with me and, I said, now you watch. I said, you you will be waited on, and I won't. He says, oh, come on. Oh, for sure. I said, yeah, we'll just walk in. We'll look around, you know, and I'm looking at everything. And he was asked if he needed help three times, and the third time um, we were headed out the door, and he turned to the guy, and he says, you know what? You guys have asked me several times now. He says, I don't really fly fish. My wife does. And no one has waited on her. You made a big mistake. Oops. And then, of course, they all like, oh, it's like, see ya. Um, but there were a lot of women experiencing that. <clears throat> and it was frustrating. I mean, I could kind of laugh about it. Um, it didn't deter me. But we had some... Um, fly shop owners in Michigan who were very, very supportive. And, <clears throat> you know, they, they recognized the value of a dollar and it didn't matter who was spending it, right? But um, 
we there there were a number of all men's club at that time and when I was editing this um, newsletter, which was called The Leader, um, there was an all-men's club in, in, the, in the region. And, <clears throat> you know, I, I think that my feeling was, like, that's fine, but you shouldn't be under a big umbrella of, like, Trout Unlimited or FFI and, and be exclusive. You know, if, if you want to have your men's only club or your women's only, not then there wasn't women's only, but it's like, that's fine, but, but don't use these national organizations. So that kind of opened like a can of worms. Uh, but, um, we decided that, well, first of all, my friend and I were teaching all these classes and, um, the women were like, now what do we do? What, what's next? So we realized that we needed to start an organization that would provide events for women to get together and meet each other and, um, you know, be educational, recreational, um, not so much conservation because we were state-based and not like uh, in one watershed. So, and we didn't want to have a lot of meetings. We just really wanted to get together and fish. So we had, we put together, you know, sat down, wrote, you know, wrote up our charter and um, that was in 96. And we certainly didn't want to be accused of being exclusive gender wise. So we just, we wrote in there, you know, anybody can join, but our goal is to, you know, get women fishing. And and so we had some, um, spouses or significant others um and but we actually had some guys that would come on our trips too usually because they were a spouse but you know we had we had a lot of fun so we started off uh in 1996 and that's uh what coming up on 30 years pretty soon and we're still going how many members are there or were there at the peak um, we're always right around 300. So you, we don't pay dues because that's another job for somebody to follow up on, but you have to be a member of FFI. So we are a hundred percent club. And, um, so somebody has to do membership, which, you know, periodically we have to purge and say, look, we reminded you these many times and people, you know, to be honest, I mean, sometimes you're in it and, you are gung-ho for 10 years, 20 years, and then life changes and uh, you have other interests. And, and so people do come and go, but there have been a core of us here for, for since 96, honestly. And um, it's a wonderful group. And um, I, gosh, I've been president now for way too long. I really want someone to step up and take over. So if you're out there... <laughs> Um, Hit and up. <laughs> talk to me. <laughs> uh, bugs. Okay. I love watching you light up every time you talk about bugs. It's one of my favorite things about you. Um, <laughs> and so I don't want to pick your brain and exhaust all your resources, but I would like to talk about areas in entomology that get you really excited. Before we do that, tell me a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, about how it really started to take over your life. I think I've read somewhere that you had tanks in your house with bugs in it. Is, am I reading rumors or is that right? 
It's true. It's true. <laughs> so, um, so when I when I start when I decided to write this book, um, I, I worked with Amato, Frank Amato, and um, it, it was a little bit different in that he had this Hatch Guide series, and he. Uh, a friend of mine had worked for a book distributor and she had moved to Colorado and, and met Frank and asked him what he was going to do uh, a book series for the upper Midwest hatch guide. He says, well, I don't know anyone there. Do you? And she says, well, actually I do. <laughs> and so then Frank and I talked and, and uh, he says, well, would you be interested in doing this? So I said, well, let me think about it. And I, and I, I gave it a lot of thought because I knew it was going to be just a massive undertaking. It would be like writing a PhD, right? And I said, well, I think I, I think I'll take it on. And he says, how long do you think it will take? And I 25 said, well, years. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I said, I think three years. And that really wasn't enough time. But um, especially since the, the I signed the contract in January, and it's like, well, nothing's going on in January. That was stupid. Um, but um, actually, there was some things going. I mean, we have winter stoneflies that start hatching in February and in March and so forth. And so that that got started with that, and that that went great. But then once you know the season got underway in April and May. Uh, there was that everything is happening all at once. And I was also, you know, still mom to now three girls and running them hither and yon and, and then me back and forth to all these rivers. And, and it'd be like, okay, well, I got these bugs. I'm going to take them home. And then I got to get so-and-so to dance and band and yada, yada. And um, by the time I get home, the bugs, you know, wouldn't probably were dead, you know, they had dried up or expired or I'd broken a wing or a tail. And, and so by, I really didn't have any good pictures by June. So that was six months into the contract. I'm like, I had a real panic moment. And so when I was at the biology station up in Pelston, you know, uh, working on my algae stuff, I knew a guy that had um, developed some artificial streams. And so I called him up and he was, he must have been, in a, he, he didn't really have time to talk to me. He, he talked to me for like five minutes and he says, yeah, all you have to do is blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, okay. And so I created these streams and I, I took um, like eaves troughs and I pieced them together in kind of like a, you know, down into these great big, huge tanks. And then I went um, and I filled them with substrate material from the river. So bits of gravel and wood and, you know, whatever, wherever I was collecting, I put those in the troughs and that was their river bottom. Then I had a recirculating pump and then it went up and dropped into the top of the river or, you know, the eaves trough. And then I had water, and I had to keep it at the right temperature, and I circulated around, and I also added extra um, oxygen bubbling up from the bottom. <clears throat> and then it would go to the rivers, and I would collect like two to four species of nymphs. 
right before, right kind of pre-mold. So, and a lot of this, I'm just learning as I, as I was going along, it's like, okay, well, this one actually has several molds to go. So then it became harder to raise them. But, um, so then I would just build more rivers. So that I had all of these going on at, at different times. So at any one time, I, I don't know, I think I had maybe four rivers going and then I had all these tanks and, um, Did you have a whole yeah. room? Was it, was it on the kitchen the, counter? I mean, do you have any? I would love to see oh, old no, photos. Was in the garage. They, okay. were, they were massive. <laughs> I mean, they were, you know, big 60 gallon tanks. So that would be one river. And then I had to do that over and over. And then, so then I could get the, the nymph or, or larva and raise them. And then I would, you know, get a perfect specimen to photograph the, the imagos and some of the duns and spinners. And, and so, cause I mean, you know, you could do some things with Photoshop, but you can't rebuild a, a tail or wing or patch up, you know, the blood coming out of them, the hemolymph. And so, um, it worked great, but, um, it was kind of like, um, it was a big race then because the, the first year was a big learning year. The second year was really, really uh, warm. And so all the hatches happened right away and, and I missed some. And, or I hadn't found them yet. You know, I hadn't found where, where different things lived in the, the habitat association. So the third year, you know, I had this massive spreadsheet, you know, okay, I've got the nymph and the spinner, but I need, you know, it's kind of like if you were, you know, you had a big baseball card collection and it's like, oh, you know, you need the, uh, you need the Alpha <laughs> line, you know. You need the, CPA you need the Gretzky. How, how many, can you give me yeah. an idea of how many bugs in total at any given time you were working with? Well, once I figured it out, I had a lot going. The, the first year, once I figured out the tanks and the logistics and, and how to raise them. By then it was probably, um, you know, into June for sure. Um, and some, some things you couldn't raise. I couldn't raise and I couldn't rear everything. Some things worked well. Some, some things. Didn't. What could you not raise out of curiosity? Uh, the burrowing insects I did not have success with, I, but they were, you know, they were easy to collect because, I mean, we have, when they hatch, I mean, there's lots of them. Although the third year I found out I was missing one and it was like of all things to not have. And um, <clears throat> I needed a, I had a really beautiful brown drake uh, done, but I didn't, I'd never collected the spinners for some reason. And I remember, um, I have some funny, funny stories. That year, um, by the time I realized it, it was like almost too late. And it's like, ah, and I put out this APB to all of my, my guide friends. It's like, Hey, I really need a brown drake spinner. Do you know any place where they're hatching? And I went to this one place and of course, you know, I got to look kind of weird and nerdy, you know, around at night, picking bugs off, you know, wherever I'm picking them, you know, and usually it's in a lighted place. And, um, I literally went up to this police car and this car was covered with brown drakes and hex spinners. And I said, I know this is weird, but I'm just going to collect a few of these and take their picture. And he's like, 
Take it. (laughs) (laughs) So that one came from a police car. Another one, um, I had a friend that had a farm on, um, right on a really great river, uh, on a creek. And there was another, uh, I was, I needed an Isonychia. I don't remember if it was the Dunn or the Spinner. I think it was the Dunn. And we, we were out in his, um, at his farm and he, and I looked up and I had my binoculars. I said, wow, I think those might be, those might be Isonychias up there. And so he goes, well, I got a ladder. And so I climb up this telephone pole and I get up there and, and he's holding it. And he goes, wait a second, there's the phone ringing. I got a really important call coming in. Just, just stay there. I'm like, Ugh. I literally stood up there like for 15 minutes while he was on his phone call holding on to this telephone pole while he ran into the house to answer the call. And I thought, well, this is too funny. I, I really hope I don't fall. <laughs> and but, also, uh, I hate you. <laughs> there, there, there were some fun, very fun things. Uh, and then, of course, you know, when you when you find something that nobody else has found before and um, and find out something about them that's unique, like their habitat. or uh, One of those was... Um, gray drakes nobody knew where the where the nymph lived and there's like you can go back there's so many old things in in the old literature that are copy and pasted to to new books or to magazine articles and um so they they had written that you know the gray drake nymph is something that we're not really quite sure where it lives but we're pretty we think it might be here we we collected one here once one and so, you know, I, I'll go out and look for those. And they, they just didn't live there. And I think they had misidentified something else. So I started looking in places that nobody else ever collected and, and found just really uh, a cornucopia of insects in, in kind of um, like spillover areas, flooded areas that are almost not really a temporary pond, but... Um, Kind of a temporary habitat uh, when it's when it's wet and flooded, and and that's where I found them, along with some other things. And that was so exciting. That was just like, wow, this is really cool. <laughs> so, okay, I've got to just kind of specify some things here. How many bugs in total ended up being published in that book, or featured, I should say? Well, let's see, there's 20, I think there's like 22 mayfly species. Um, it's like 15 caddis and about eight different stoneflies. So, whatever that is. A lot. 22. 50 something. Yeah, over, over 40, 45. And so then this new book, um, which I just got, I just received them last week. Um, it's a really beautiful yeah, cover. Don't be shy. Tell me all about it. Is this, this okay. is a second, is this, so this is not a revised version. This is a totally separate book, this new book. So this is with Stackpole. Um, and I'll tell you about that in a little bit here. Um, but I decided I, I wanted in the first book to have terrestrials in there also, oh. but I just ran out of Right. Time. Okay. I mean, I, I couldn't, um, I, I had saved the, I got, when I finally got all my bugs, 
then I had to get all the, the artificial patterns together. And I was using, you know, lots of Midwest tires for that. And, you know, all the photography I was also learning along the way. And the bugs are one thing to photograph. And that's, there's some really funny stories there too. But I thought the flies would be very easy, but it turns out they are not at all. And I had just, it, 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 it just about killed me to get them, you know, there's, there's just a lot of problems with it. I mean, you, you, if you've done it at all and you know, we the, the type of lighting you need. The box, did you have to have the flag. white kind of box going on? Well, and the other thing is I didn't want to, <clears throat> I, you know, I'm, I didn't want to do what everybody else had done, so I didn't want just a blue background. And I, I have this kind of creative side of me that I wanted it to kind of be fun staging, I guess. And so, um, yeah, so there, that was that was that took way longer. And so it actually, I, I didn't, I didn't really get the book done in the allotted time. I went over by. I think three months and they finally just said, look, you have to turn it in. So the, the extra things that I wanted to do with terrestrials, I just had to let that go. I just, it set set you up for book number two, but the first one, before we go into um, book two, so the first one was, it was specific to Michigan or the Midwest in general. And then secondly, um, were they all insects that were specific to fishing? So good questions. Um, so the upper Midwest is Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, um, Iowa, kind of that chunk. I mean, technically, like the Midwest, I mean, I don't know what people think of as the Midwest, but they would, I think also places like Kansas would be even though it's kind of plains, it's probably considered Midwest. So when you say the Upper Midwest, it's it's kind of kind of Great Lakes centered, but not entirely. Um, like New York is definitely more Eastern, and uh, but a lot of you could take my book to New York and and still have great success. There's only a few things that they may have that we don't, and and vice versa. Right. And then it was specific to fishing? Were there bugs that you wanted to include, but they just weren't necessarily relative, or they didn't have anything Um, to do with fishing? No, they're they're all very much, yeah, fishing-related, and also to streams, not to lake situations. So um, something like Calabatus is really a, a lake species, um, and you may sometimes encounter it in Michigan. It's, it's really more of a really important insect, uh, in the Western States. We will have it here, but I, if you, if you complicate it and start adding all waters, you know, like ponds and lakes, then it becomes overwhelming. You know, it, you, you can't, and most people that are trout fishing are on streams and rivers, so. So I kept it to that. Okay. So book number two, uh, it's just, is it available for, is it for sale now or did you just get your hands on it, it, a sample? It hasn't been released. This is really cool. It hasn't been released, but it's already into its second printing. Oh my, wait, so it's pre-sold? Oh, <gasps> yeah. 
Congratulations. Pretty, I, that I is enormous. That's pretty exciting. So, um, I'm like, wow, that's fine. So what did you do differently in this book and how long did it take you? I think Stackpole's pretty understanding, right? Were they pretty lenient with their timeline? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, a deadline <laughs> is a deadline. You know, right. and if you've ever been an editor um, or any kind of writer, you know how important that there's a deadline for a reason. And I'm sure, you know, if probably any really good editor builds in a little buffer so that if something comes up, you might have a few days or a week or something. I don't know. But um, <laughs> when the deadline on this came up, it was um, April 15th or something. And oh, this is funny. I was... I can't remember what I was, why I was doing this, but I was, I must have been writing, obviously. And I, I, there, the big Midwest Fly Fishing Expo, I, I didn't feel 100%. It was the first one post COVID that they were holding. And I, and I canceled and I said, you know what? I just don't feel great. I've got this deadline, yada, yada. And so I had been up north finishing things up and, um, collecting bugs somewhere and I'm driving home and I'm, I, I'm thinking that I've been bit by a black fly and it, um, it turned out it was a tick totally grossed me out. I'm driving home and I'm like, ah, you know, and I, and I can see it in there. And then once you know, you have one, you know, you've got to stop right away and get it out. Right. And, uh, so I stopped at a at a pharmacy to get like alcohol. Well, I had alcohol for collecting bugs in the car, so that part was covered. I had to stop and buy some tweezers and get it out. And I, of course, I preserved it. And I was worried about Lyme's disease, which is a thing now, right? So I'm so rattled, and I and I get back on the highway, and I'm heading home, and um, and I'm just so tense. And I also have all this pain right here tell you about that. Well, I'm coming home and I see this turkey along coming like coming up like oh no. It's like so I switch lanes and thinking I'll speed up and get ahead and it'll go behind me. So what has happened is the the turkey also speeds up, takes off in flight. I just hit it. And the whole thing just blows up on my car. And I, all these sensors start going off, and it's like, oh, this is the really bad day. Um, then I get home, and, and I had a scheduled, so if there was some damage, and um, but I, but the main thing was I worried about this tick. Um, so I, but I had a, so I had to go to the doctor and get all the drugs for Lyme's disease, just you know, kind of a prophylactic sort of thing, and uh, but. I, and I'm thinking I'm grinding my teeth or something, but um, I go into the dentist just because I had a cleaning and they do an x-ray and I've, and I've got this abscess tooth and I'm like, oh. So without going into all of that, I had all that going on and, and the deadline on this book was like in two weeks. It's like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And, and so I, 
I did, and um, but it, it was really a, it was painful. <laughs> and uh, so I and I wrote all that to to Jay Nichols when I turned it in. He goes, he got a big laugh out of it. And he goes, well, you know, you could have just said I need a, an extra week or something. But, <laughs> Oh no, I'm turning. It's going in. It's getting done. So, um, but I, they were really, really, really good people to work with, and a great editorial staff in general. And um, I, I really, I can't say enough good things about them. Did you give yourself more than three years this time, or did you did you know that um, um, you could do it in three years? No. So I did. It took two years. Okay. Is that because you already had a lot of the groundwork done? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, um, I had, you know, I had to decide what terrestrials I wanted to include. And so I had all of, all that photography and um, research and then flies. But the, the good news there is, I you know, the, the fly part that, the guy, the people that I got to, to tie for me, they were very responsive and very quick, very fast. And, um, were some of them, you know, had secret patterns. It's like, okay, I'll give you this, you know, the secret rubber bug. Um, and, um, that was a rusty gates pattern actually that Josh Greenberg tied. But so that's always fun, you know, when people trust you and, um, like, okay, yeah, you can have this one. But, um, some changes to this book. Um, Stackpole does a hard cover on most everything, so it's 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 hefty. I mean, this and it's it's chunky. <laughs> so oh, I added, wow, that's a lot of. How many pages is that? It is three hundred and seventy nine. Did you include the information from your book? I guess you, I guess you couldn't, especially with different publishers, you couldn't put a lot of information. No, I, I could. So, um, I got a, it's called a right of reversion, I believe. And because Amato, Amato ended up dropping a lot of their titles and I don't know why, but, um, so when that happens, you usually have 10 years before you can republish it. And they, they said, you can have that right away. Oh. So that was great. So I got that. And then, and then in working with Jay, I, I was going to self-publish it. And I didn't know anything about that, but I, that has, doesn't usually stop me from doing things. Um, and then um, I had reached out to Stackpole, but it was right at the start of COVID and that, at that time when people weren't in the office and, and I somehow got lost in the shuffle. And then as I was the end of my first year of working on the second book, um, then Jay called me and we talked for a long time and I said, well, I don't know. I don't know. And I just thought about it a long time and, and got back with him and we got the ball rolling with Stackpole and, um, that, you know, and the thing about having a publisher, it's a, it's a big push then because there's that deadline again. And when you're doing something on your own, you know, it, it can take a lot longer or, you know, I could still be working on it. You know, honestly, be, there's just one more thing, you know, and I want to do one, you know, and 
you know, so then just never gets born. <laughs> yeah. So. so which terrestrials did you add? Well, uh, adult dragonflies and damselflies, um, generically, I mean, not all different species, but uh, grasshoppers, crickets, bees, ants, beetles, um, well, gypsy moths, um, what, a.k.a. Uh, spongy moths, cicadas, uh, oh, what else? Coronamids, which I had not been able to get in the first one. I just had the adult. I, there were, you know, some various life cycle stages that I might have missed the first time around. I just, I had to turn it in. And then, uh, something called a snipe fly, which, um, the adult looks a lot like a deer fly, but it doesn't bite, um, in the, um, we, we have those, and I think people have always thought they were fishing a deer fly pattern, or or and it could be a deer fly, it could be any kind of fly, um, but we actually, it's an important insect, and um, some very fun research on that, especially on the larval stage. <clears throat> so, I don't know, how many was that? That's a bunch more. Um, a cool thing that, well, I did some other changes, I there were some fly recipes that, uh, one of them, uh, I have a, a fly tire that uses, he calls it meat paper from the butcher He's, I, that he uses in his spinner wings. And it, I had a really great um, editor. She says, well, what is this? And I'm like, mm. so I had to go to a track it down so that if I, you know, like I, Amazon was helpful in that regard where you can actually go and find the name of the meat butcher paper and you can order it. And so I found out some, some things like that, some corrections that I made. But uh, on the pages with the flies, I added the recipe page number in the back. So if you're a tire, you can easily flip back and forth. And then Stackpole did a really neat thing. They color-coded. And I don't know if you can see that, but... Um, so the, the mayflies all have a blue edged, um, Oh, that's so handy. Yes. Yeah. And the, and caddis are kind of a brown and, and so on. Stoneflies are green. And, uh, so it's like, wow, that's really, really helpful. That makes it very user friendly. So, and there are a few other changes in there too, but, um, um, yeah, I'm happy with it. I can't wait to see it. I'm excited for you um, for when it goes live and when it's out in people's hands. Can, where can people, before I, I start asking you questions about specific bugs, um, where can people buy the book? Okay, so I, I, I anticipated that. So the, the uh, Stackpole will have those available through Angler's Book Supply. Oh, good, okay. Uh, yep. Rumpf, Ingram, uh, Baker and Taylor and Amazon. And then, of course, I always like it when people just go to their favorite fly shop and, and get it there. Or they can buy it from me. Can they uh, do that? Yeah. And then what's your, just so that I've got the plug here live for people listening, it's, tell me your website. Um, it's my website, which um, I'm also doing. <laughs> so that hasn't 
totally launched, but it'll be up in a week or so, is uh, Midwest Midwest Hatches. Also, you can um, email me at midwesthatches at gmail.com. Perfect. Let me ask you about questions. The, the book is... Uh, Twenty nine ninety five, and the title of it. I mean, I'm going to post all this in the notes anyway. But is a pocket guide to upper Midwest hatches with the color coded edges. It does actually. It is very much a pocket guide. I love it. That was very smart. Yes. Yeah. Good point. You know, um, I remember. Yeah, I remember doing that to an old bird guide where you, you know, draw on the edges and you draw little lines and then you'd be like. Whoop flip to there. Um, but that was before color coding came in, but it, it, it makes it, it'll be really good. And it's still really designed, um, for everyone. So that if you're new to fly fishing, you know, I give you a background and talk about with each insect, the habitat, what time of year you, you find it. Um, how does it hatch? What time of day it hatches? And then, but it also, for a, a seasoned angler, there's information in there that, you know, you'll, everybody finds something in there that, that's good for them. And of course, for, for fly tires, um, you know, there's all the fly recipes are in the back and, and they're all, all work really well now because I had a really awesome editor who just went through and she was a fly tire and she's like, well, do you mean this hook and not that hook? And, you know, it, it, I mean, that's the sort of detail that it's like, yeah, you're right. And, um, so everybody needs an editor. <laughs> yeah. Especially one who fly fishes. Um, I've got a couple questions for you about just your journey and, and your experience with, with learning more about bugs, entomology. Have you ever found that having so much knowledge is a hindrance to your own fishing? And if so, can you give me an example? That is a great question. Um, and I would say it, it doesn't to me because you can never know everything. And, and, and I think you have to have that, that approach to fly fishing. It's, it's, if you know everything, then what fun would it be if you caught every fish, you know, that you ever went after? I mean, when you can fool a, a certain fish, I mean, I don't care if it's 12 inches or 20 inches. If you get fixated, it's like, I am going to figure out what you're eating and, and have a fly to match it. That is what makes me happy. And it doesn't matter. It's just like, yes, I did it, you know. Um and so I, I feel like I'm always learning. I'm always, I always learn something when I go to the river and I, I'm always turning over rocks and, you know, looking in the bushes to see what's, what I see. And, you know, even though, you know, we know, I mean, it should be happening like this. Um, there's always surprises out there, you know, and, and so I still sometimes get skunked. You know, everybody has those days, right? Is there an exception? You know, just use, you said there are situations where it doesn't happen the way that it should. Are there any exceptions or any, you know, miracles in nature that leave us with an exception that most of us don't know about? 
Well, I mean, there's, there's, every year is different. So the phenology, you know, the, the natural order of things, um, <clears throat> you know, some years thing hatches that, you know, on average happen, let's say opening day, the end of April. Well, you know, sometimes you have a really cold spring and the hatches that are supposed to be on at that time are off, you know, for, I mean, if it's cold and rainy and snowy, um, all those hatches get pushed back a little bit. And the same, by the same token, if it's super warm, everything that you have planned, you know, and we're expecting to happen, don't happen. So you really have to be observant, um, you know, and, and, and just be, just be prepared. And so the way I set up my fly boxes, I set them up by seasons so I, I, I know for the, for our upper Midwest, what we have and seasonally. So I'll have my early spring box, my late, and usually I can get early spring, late spring, uh, into one fly box. And then as I overlap and go to the next season, I'll include a little bit of the late spring into the now early summer so that I don't have to carry all my fly boxes because you know, I would look like the Michelin tire man. <laughs> and, you know, we've all been that angler when it's like, oh, I'm so weighted down. And the whole beauty of fly fishing is it's supposed to be very freeing and um, it can be very hard not to take everything with you. So I set them up by season and a good idea. Just make sure that my, I, you know, this time of year I'm tying and replacing things and throwing away stuff that might be a little bit beat up and stuff. Eating better is easy with Factors' delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. How important is color specifically when it comes to matching the hatch? 
Well, I feel like size is more important. That's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. When I'm not catching something, I'll size down, size down a fly, size down a tippet. I've had instances, and this is more with terrestrials, with grasshoppers, where you really did have to have the right color uh, hopper. But that that is less important uh, with with other bugs, in my experience. So I always say try to match the size first and then dial in the color. And, and insects are interesting. There's a lot of um, plasticity. Um, and so um, water chemistry with, with some insects is very important. And so if you collect, you know, an ephemerella on... <clears throat> stream A, and then you trek to some other stream 30 miles away, you you can see differences in color um, right then and there. Also, insects, um, when they first hatch, are often much different color than when you see them several hours later. And so that's why color is, there's a lot of variability there. So things that you that you see, even in my book, um, if it's several hours older, um, you, you might see it on the river and, and it, you might see some different colors in it. So you, you can't dial in all those factors, um, and, and get everything into, into one, into one guide. But gosh, if, if you could, that would be really cool. <laughs> but, you know, then you got all the other, other things that I mentioned in there, there's just, it would be impossible. But the other thing that's interesting with, with insects too, not only is the color, you know, somewhat variable, but um, their development can be different. And, and so if it's, if it's very, very cold, I mean, they can, they might, you know, spend that, it, it might say that, you know, this hexagenia has, 20 molts, you know, before it becomes an adult. I'm throwing that number out. That's not correct. But um, sometimes they'll actually become adults um, or, you know, emerge after 18 or 17. So there's, they can kind of, that variable there, that what we used to think of as certain number of instars before they develop isn't really the case. That it's, it's rather variable. So that's pretty interesting. Just 17 or 18 times, is that an actual number, a possibility? Well, yeah. So typically the smaller, um, so some of the small betas, they, they might undergo 30 molts before they become an adult. So that's a long time. That's a lot of changes. So how old are they on average? Just a, well, so like a hex, like most mayflies spend about a year as a nymph. Um, some of them, some of the smaller ones, like some of the betas, they might only, you know, be four or five months or three months even. Um, trichos, they're you know, only uh, three months, three or four months for development. Um, but most, most mayflies take a year. Um, most caddisflies take a year. Most Stoneflies um, can be a year. Some of them are two to three to four before they um, emerge. So really, as adults, as adults, they're they're very just a small amount of time. I think I remember reading that chronomids could last a few years. 
Have you heard of that? What's the longest cycle, and, and which insect does it belong to? Um, well, stoneflies in the aquatics would be the lo- some of the longer ones. Um, you said and, three or four, and you meant years, right? Yes, yes. Ow. So some of the smaller mayfly or some of the smaller stoneflies uh, will take a year. Like some of the little yellow sallies, for example, they're just a, a year long. But um, your big, um, when you were out west, you had the big salmon fly, uh, and we have a cousin to that. Um, uh, we we just call it a giant stone fly. Some people call them salmon flies. Those are probably, here they're probably two to three years. And as you go further north, like further into Canada, then, then some of those would be a four-year development. So there are longer, longer ones. Is it because the water's colder? Yes, yeah. But it's also built into their genetics too, because the mayflies that live in that colder water, they're still only a year in um, their development. Now, the hexagenia, the hex mayfly in rivers um, can t- will take uh, two years to develop. So that's one of our longer mayflies. But in a lake situation, they're typically developed in a year. So um, there was a study done, and they found that just by increasing temperature, you could change the development of that mayfly. So that's pretty interesting, too. Yeah, right. There's so many fascinating little things that, you know, you just, that rabbit hole, you know, it's always. Fly fishers love it. You know, you can. down. But you can watch all the, at a party, you can watch someone just glaze over, right? I'll get all excited talking about the life cycle of a chronomid, and you just watch them glaze. But fly fishers get it. You know what I mean? It's really, it's really interesting, I think, to the majority of us, especially trout fishers. Yeah. Um, some, in one of our master classes, Josh Nugent mentions about, he says, you know, don't bother tying to match the male. I can't remember which fly it is. Um, they don't return back to the water to lay eggs like the females do. Can you think of of a number of situations? Can you think of any particular situations where the male and female differ, and there might yes. be no? Yeah, go, just you know what I'm asking. Go ahead, well, hit hit me with it. So, um, so in the mayfly, there are a lot of different families. So, and then you know, some mayflies have two tails as adults. Some have three tails, and I'm kind of working on some little tools for fly fishers so that. I felt like when I first started, that was a real stumbling block. Like, oh, you know, why, you know, how do you learn all this? What are some little tips and tricks? And so I'm, I'm working on something to, to make that helpful. It's it's basically, you know, a, t- a key, you know, if two go this way, if three go this way, and, and down you go. So there's a big group of mayflies with three tails, and they're pretty much all the ephemerality. And so that's things like your pale evening down, your pale morning down. Um, we have sulfurs here, um, Hendrickson's. Those are all in the ephemerella. And the, and the ephemerella have lots of sexual dimorphism. So males and females look different. So especially like with our Hendrickson's, the males have kind of this pinkish body when they emerge and the females are a more drab, kind of drabish, brownish, olive color. And then also, they're different sizes. So when you see, when you go to a hatch chart, it'll say size 12 to 14, which when I first started, I thought, oh, that just means that's a range. Well, no, the 
the bigger number refers to the female and the smaller number refers to the male. So the males are smaller uh, in general in the insect world than the females because the females have a, a longer abdomen with, with um, full of eggs. So, all right, and I got to remember what the question was. So um, sometimes it can make a difference. So when, when a, when you think of a clutch of eggs, when they're ready to develop and they first start to emerge at the, the very first part of that hatching, the males will develop, they, they'll hatch first. So if you are at the very beginning of a Hendrickson hatch, you might only be seeing males and no females for a day or, or even two days. And then you'll have males and females coming on. And so sometimes fish can you know, key in on one of those sizes. Um, again, probably that's where shifting to a smaller, dropping a size down often um, will will be better. So, but then coming to so that's with the duns so as they're hatching. But then in the in the spinner stage, which is the the reproductive stage, um, most of the females will be, of course, falling on the river. But some, like with mayflies, some of the females might actually have a different strategy for laying their eggs, and they might toss their eggs at the water. And so sometimes you might not even get, like you'll see all these spinners, and yet hardly any are hitting the water. So depending on the species, sometimes the female doesn't land on the water and lay her eggs. So some of them, some of them will land and squeeze all their eggs out. And then others, like all of the ephemerellas that I mentioned, they have like more like a little ball and they will kind of flick it into the water. Sometimes they'll land on the water um, and, and get their eggs out that way. And then some will just hover above the water and then, you know, flick their abdomens and toss their eggs in that way. So there are a lot of different strategies for egg laying. Um, so there's not really one answer there, like, if I like to have, you know, for, for my female patterns, um, or for spinners especially, I like to tie in a little egg spot. Um, and, of course, all the different egg, eggs are different colors. And, and I do try to point that out in my, in my hatch guide. And, um, and, and I think that's partly why, you know, fly tires are always looking for that little hot spot, right? And sometimes it's the eggs, sometimes it's the eyes. Um, or or other things. So there's no one right answer there. So some of the males will fall just out of exhaustion and, and be on the water, but typically it is going to be more females. Do all the females die after laying their eggs? Most, yes. Yeah. Um, so like in some of the larger mayflies, so I keep coming back to the hex. That's it, just because a lot of people know that mayfly. Um and typically, you know, they they spend a, a day or two in the in the dun stage and the spinner stage. Um, in some of the bigger mayflies, they might actually be able to live longer, and they might actually mate more than once. Um, <clears throat> some of the smaller smaller mayflies, you know, they might only live a few hours or certainly a day, and and a lot of it's weather dependent too. If it's if it's very hot. Um, that's more stressful than um, being cold for an insect.
So makes sense because they just go kind of dormant so in the cold, some right? Of, some of the females will land on the water and die and be eaten or washed, you know, into little back eddies. And um, so not everything ends up in a fish's mouth. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes other things will eat them, you know, just like maybe ducks or something. You know, they, if, they, if they had a big pool of protein over there, you know, you might see them over there eating them too. A lot of birds and bats, of course, when they're in the air. But um, so some of them will just, you know, fly off and die other places. But we just don't see them collected anywhere else except, you know, like on the water or at the gas station at night, right? <laughs> <laughs> on cops' cars. Did you? Right. Um, yeah. Did you say that you fish an a mayfly egg fly? Yeah, a mayfly well, egg fly. A to say with, that. So a pattern with. Um, so the different different species have different color eggs. Yes, but a pattern so, with not a pattern with the hot spot. Did you say that you just fished like an egg cluster, or was I just hearing that in my head? No, 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 no. Okay, no, no, no. just tying that uh, little in as part of the fly itself. Okay. Will the fish eat just the eggs as the eggs are thrown in, or are they just too small? And well, that's a great question. Um, Probably not a lot of um, gut studies done on that. Um, most of the eggs are going to sink pretty quickly and then adhere to the bottom. Uh, although some fish eggs, you know, they've found studies where they, they have passed through a fish gut um, and they, you know, are pretty much unharmed. So they'll just get pooped out and still have a shot at growing up. <laughs> So, but it, it, as far as being a major food source, um, I, I, I'm sure there's an exception to the exception to the room, rule, but uh, for the most part, they are not a. They don't trout are not feeding on those at the same time. Not necessarily focused. Chronomids. Why are chronomids so popular in lakes? Um, large chronomids, I mean, and the large chronomids don't seem to be, be quite as prevalent or from what I've seen anyway in rivers. Okay. So you did ask about that and, and most of them are very short lived. I, I didn't get to come back to that. They have a pretty short life cycle. So, um, but it's a, it's an enormous family and there are, there's just a, a lot of them in lakes. Um, they, the larvae live down in the bottom sediments, and uh, we we just seem to have a lot more of those in in, in lakes and and still um, in tailwaters also, um, <clears throat> and so that's when you can really focus on them. Um, it's it's and and target them with a fly, you know, because you, you've got to have a little bit of a still water. Um, just because of the way they emerge and they're small. And we, we do have some on, on rivers that are certainly important, but um, they really are a, a still water uh, target, I would say. You know how chronomids have that the gases in them and then they kind of seizure their way all the way up and squirm mm-hmm. up to the top? Do any other bugs have that metallic look to them while they're emerging? Well... Yes, and and I, you know, in looking at stuff in in tanks, and I have not seen it. I think it's pretty hard to capture with a camera. Um, but for example, some 
I know with some mayflies, they'll actually gulp a little air, which creates a bubble in them and helps them to then emerge. Um, and that's, you know, they, that's sort of true with, well, not sort of true. It's also true with, uh, caddis flies. Um, not so much stone flies. They're crawling out to emerge. So there is kind of some gas under that, you know, is between the, the exoskeleton that's getting shed. Um, and it, and it can cause a color change, but, Personally, I have spent a lot of time trying to capture that, um, and I have not. So I'm, I'm continuing to, to do that. I'm trying to do some stuff with video also, um, which, you know, it's kind of like watching paint dry, and, and you can sit there for days and days, and nothing will happen. And you'll get up and run inside and grab a beer and come back. And then, of course, everything has happened. It's like, <laughs> Every time. But once in a while, you know, you'll get lucky and, and catch something. And um, I, I'm working on building a tank. I mean, you can imagine, so when you're doing any kind of macro photography, you've got to be right on top of things to, to have the focus right. And so in a big tank, if something, of course, it's going to swim away from you <laughs> no matter what. And, um to the other side and then you're trying to get the focus and, and see the emergence, but it's really, really, that's what, that's what people like to see because it's like, Oh, wow, that is so cool. Um, and, and then you're in your own head, you know, you're like, wow, I need to tie this like this and add this on and, um, or wow, that's a lot faster than I thought it was. And no wonder I'm, you know, missing out on hatches because by the time I, I realize it, you know, everything and change the fly and get the knot tied and blah, 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 then the hatch is over. <laughs> so that's, that's really fun when you, when you do have a little success and um, get to capture it. I can't even imagine trying to photograph between water and glass and insects. Moving. Oh, it just sounds like, sounds like you deserve an award for your patience. <laughs> I've got a question for you about adult dragonflies. Do do, they, do fish actually eat adult dragons? Well, they they will um, if they can get them when they're laying their eggs. But they dragonflies have incredible eyesight, and so I mean, even trying to catch one in a net can be really challenging. Oh, but, I wouldn't have thought uh, that. Yeah, no, they're 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 very visual. But they can eat. They can eat them when they're laying their eggs, because you know they got to get the eggs back into the water, um, and they can eat them. I, I mean, technically they they're an adult, but um, they're called a teneral, T E N E R A L. And when they that's the stage as the adult, as the nymph climbs out and emerges. Um, and it's very, it's really beautiful. The colors are just incredibly gorgeous. Um, and they, those can fall back in the water, you know, if the, the weather's bad, and in which case technically it would be uh, an adult. Um, but that's kind of a vulnerable stage, and then, the, but then the egg layers. So, but, but then with damselflies, now that's really, they're not as strong a flyer. Um, they're still pretty good flyers, but, the same thing, and, then, and dragonflies and damselflies are really kind of like cousins. Um, 
the a lot of the female damselflies have to lay their eggs underwater so they'll climb down the stem of a plant and then they they'll cut a little slit in the plant and deposit their eggs in there and so then they become very vulnerable to fish Right. I've had a number of aha moments so far, and I haven't even read your book yet. I can't wait to. What has been your biggest aha moment in decades of entomology and studying bugs? Um, gosh, I feel like I just have them all the time because I never get tired of looking stuff up and um, trying to find studies. And But I, I think... Um, you know, when I was writing my book, finding out where Grey Drake, um, the nymphs live, because I, I put in a lot of miles and, and, you know, it's like going back to the baseball card. It's like, where are they? Where are they? You know, and it's like, they're in this river somewhere, but where are they? And, and it's like, just think outside the box, you know, it's like, don't think, just look, you know, and, and so, and, the, and there were, there were a lot of insects like that. The bat fly was another one. Um, that was funny because that was one of those flies that only the fishing guides knew about. It's a, it's the genus is Batisca. It's a really funny looking mayfly. It looks more like a little uh, horseshoe crab than, than a mayfly, but nobody knew anything about them at all. And this one fishing guide says, I'll give you $100 if you don't put that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Got to do better than that, bud. Because <laughs> now, now everybody knows what bad things are and um, the secret's out. But, you know, that's just fun. I mean, everybody deserves to, to know, right? Have you discovered a fly yet? And if you were to discover one, would you put your name on it like everyone else does? Uh, no, <laughs> no and no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not out there for that reason. I just, I just love being outdoors and, and, and just finding new things, you know, and the, sometimes you just think, well, gosh, you know, I wish, I wish this would have happened sooner, like, you know, decades ago. And it's like, no, this is fine. I mean, everybody's path isn't, you know, straight and narrow. And sometimes it takes a long time to figure out how to get there. And so what I thought I wanted to be when I grew up, really, I had no idea, you know, but I I just always loved um, everything about biology. Well, not the cell biology stuff. I don't get that. But um, just love asking questions and figuring the answers out because, you know, it's figuring out what the question is sometimes. That's what I really like. I love the way your brain works. My last question before I let you go, because I know it's getting late there um, on Eastern time, is if from a fishing stance, if you had to choose your favorite bug, what or which one would it be? <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm pretty partial to mayflies. Gathered that. <laughs> I, I, um, I think probably one of my favorite hatches is Isonychia. It's um, it's a hatch. There again, there's a kind of a something that when when I first started studying, well, when I got into fly fishing, there were multiple species of Isonychias, and then with with all the cell biology stuff, all the DNA things, they learned out 
they they figured out that they're actually all the same species and that they're and this is really interesting and and this is I'll be curious to know if I ever figure it out but they're separated in time so the first clutch of Isonychia bicolor that comes along in in June they're bigger um, and, and probably a, a bigger hatch of them. But then we get them later in the season, like in later in August and September, and they're a little bit smaller, and they're never as concentrated. And it's like, well, if they're separated in time, why aren't they separate species? You know, what's their strategy for, for the... Because they're still... So the ones in June take them another whole year... And they hatch again in June. And the ones in August and September, it's the same thing. And these guys are never meeting in the middle. And it's like, why is that? What's what's the strategy there? Is it nature just trying to keep it adaptive? I mean, what do you think it is, if you had to hypothesize? I don't know. I, I think about it every year. Um, and again, you know, there's some of that plasticity. and uh, But there must be an evolutionary strategy for the insect to to maybe it's just you know by having them the two different times it ensures that something will come along but and and make it to the following year but um i don't know i i'm probably not really asking the right question there but um it's it's certainly curious there have been other mayflies too that uh had multiple names you know multiple species and and they figured out that they're the same thing now. And the mayflies that hatch at the be- at the very beginning are bigger. They probably have better resources as they're feeding and uh, eating. And then uh, the ones that come along later are smaller. Um, I'm thinking of um, the uh, March brown mayfly. There used to be a March brown and a gray fox, and and now they realize they're they're all the same thing. It's just they get a little bit smaller as uh, the season goes on. How interesting. Yeah. Oh, this book is going to be so good. And and you know what? I know that there are people right now screaming into their their phones or computers going, ask this, I need to know this. Get the book. If you have any outstanding questions, let Anne or myself know, and I'm sure that we'll get an answer for you. Um, is there anything I've really missed, though, or anything in the book that you would really like to mention? <laughs> Oh, I'll think of stuff when we uh, when we cut out. Um, but oh, don't don't feel like I, I already said this, but um, you know, don't don't feel like if you're just a beginner that the book is it's it's designed for anyone from beginning to season. So. And I and I wanted it to be that way. I don't want you to. I don't want you to be scared by Latin names. But um, you know, you have to have Latin names in there. But there's also common names, and um, I like the Latin names because, you know, I I I'm buggy. But um, you, you you don't have to learn Latin names if you don't want to. No one's gonna uh, make you do that. But um, it does make it easier to talk to other people about it so that you know you're talking about the same insect, you know, so. That's a good point because I think the Latin names can really be intimidating to some people, but they, they're, they're there if you need them, but you don't have to use them. Right. It's like, you know, I mean, 
it's funny what the people, the same people that don't want to learn the Latin name will know all of the, the breakdown of a reel and the, the, you know, how it's machined and yada, 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 yada. So, I mean, if you can invest that into that, then you can probably also learn a Latin name or two. And, and you don't have to learn everything. I mean, you just, you start off learning, um, what you're familiar with. So it's like, when you when you start learning birds, you learn the birds at your feeder, right? You don't take the whole book and go, Ugh. you know. So if you only fish in May and June, then you know, then you only have to learn half of the book, or only half of the book is, you know, there there are people that that trout fish that way. They only fish a couple of different hatches, and 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 that makes them happy. <laughs> Yeah. So. Yep. No, it's a proper pocket. I'm excited. I mean, I think you're going to need a big pocket, but it's definitely um, something that I think most anglers should have handy and available. And it's a great gift yes. if that's someone, if someone's thinking about that. Um, last question for you, and this is just a personal one. Did you ever end up looking up the hair worm that I was telling you about? <laughs> I did look. I sent you some stuff on it. Um, oh, that's yeah. right. You did. You did. Did you? So did you yes. see the video? Yeah, with it crawling out. For people who don't know what I'm talking about, there's this pair. Would you call it a parasite? The hairworm parasite. Yes. Yeah. This thing takes over a. It's been a while since I've watched the video, but it takes over a mayfly's body, or goes into the mayfly. And I didn't realize that the that crickets ate mayflies for starters. So then the cricket eats the mayfly, and the parasite then basically. Hatches. <laughs> Tell me if I'm saying anything yeah, wrong. Yeah, it's but... like the alien. Yeah, and it takes over yeah, the it's... entire cricket's body and brain and makes it go to the water, where it then forces the cricket basically into the water and then hatches out of the cricket's bum. I mean, it is yes. one of the most disturbing yeah. it was, it things. Was... <laughs> it, it was pretty gross, um, but when you go back and and. Um... If you watch this and the, or if you look at any bugs up close and then you go back and you watch the alien and I have really wonderful appreciation for great science fiction and, and, and the whole life cycle thing. And it's like, wow, that's really good. They really nailed that. Right. And, um, so when you, when you sent me all that, it's like, whoa, this is really crazy. <laughs> Did you but know? You have to, I mean, your daughter was, what, was she three when she yeah. found that? Yeah. And she watched yeah. that so many times that she actually could damn near narrate the video with the, with the voiceover. Um, did you know though that crickets ate mayflies? I had no idea. I did not know that at the time. No. Do grasshoppers, do you know of and- any other bugs that eat mayflies? Um, well, yeah, I mean, and so some of it has to do with what stage they're at and, and the size of them and so forth. So <clears throat> some, some mayflies are actually, will feed on other mayflies at different stages in their life cycle. So when you think about like an isonychia, that lar- that nymph, um, it, it's a filter feeder. And so it's, it's got, you know, it's, it's legs like this and it's got these like bristles, little, little hairs on there. They're kind of like combs sticking out and whatever lands in there will just, you know, kind of chow down on it. So a little coronamid could land in there and, and it would eat it. Um, so technically it makes it, you know, carnivorous. Um, and, and so at different stages, typically when the insects are bigger, they'll, they'll feed on um, other, in, other mayflies or, or, 
little caddis or coronamids and, and so forth. A lot of the stoneflies are um, carnivorous. God, bugs are gnarly. Well, look, all the power to you. I am so excited. What's next? Are you going to take some downtime? Or do you have to start doing the book circuit now and getting on the road? Kind of, yeah. I got. Um, I have... I have to get 200 books signed by um, Friday, I think, and take them to different shops, fly shops, my fly shop friends, and um, and do some book signings. And then we have the expo coming up. And um, so stuff to look forward to. It's going to be busy. Um, and then I, I got to be playing with my grandbabies, too. You know, I don't want to neglect them. I got to uh, get them out fishing. I'll get my four-year-old and three-year-old out this year. The four-year-old's been out once, but uh, my three-year-old um, needs to get going now. next. One thing that, you know, I have learned is you don't take them together. You take them one at a time because my older two girls, I took them together because they were, they had to do everything together. And, you know, it was, it was overwhelming for them. And probably I was really wanting them to catch a fish, you know, and not really seeing seeing it through their eyes. Like, you know, when I took my, my oldest grandson out the first time, I made sure we just had a great picnic. And all he cared, he caught his fish, and he's like, okay, I'm ready to go now. And it's like, whoa, what? <laughs> That's not how it works. We gotta, we got to get more. It's like, okay, let's go. You know, I had to, you know. So I, we, we just, I'd had a different approach the, the second time around. I learned a few things. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, you've got your priorities straight. I'm such a big fan. So thank you for that. And <laughs> um, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. It's been great, April. It's really good to see you again. Likewise. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Tune in next week as I sit down with George Daniel. George Daniel.